There is no greater love than to lay down my life for my Savior. What would happen if your personal focus shifted from the internal to the external, from yourself to the world around you? Would you lay it all down as a sacrifice to Jesus? Would you dare to take a step to go where he says go? Would you go tell others the good news that Jesus is alive? Would you do whatever it takes, whatever it costs to serve him, to witness to the world around you? Would your prayer be, God, here I am. Send me, use me for your glory. Good morning. Glad that you are here. I um, want to welcome everybody on the way in. They handed you the notes, and you will need a pen or a pencil. There's a few fill-in-the-blanks. You can use the online version, uh, U-Notes, Y-O-U Notes, and uh, if you learn best by just listening, um, whatever way works best for you, that's what, uh, that's what we want to do. Um, tell you a quick story. I use, um, I use my life. Uh, at, at times, I think that um, when you're trying to explain how, uh, how the Word of God works uh, in our life, how it changes us. Um, I think, at least for me, I use examples in my own life for this reason, that if it's not working for me, it's really hard to tell somebody else to be doing it if it's not working for you. And so um, we're in a series called Through Every Window, and it comes uh, from this idea and from this thought. Outreach to us is of high priority and importance. And what I mean by that is churches can easily, any group of people, but churches can easily become inward focused where they begin to consume most of the resources um, for themselves uh, to, to keep their own thing going and propped up and working. And we made a decision back from the very, very beginning before we ever had any meeting, before there was ever any church, a decision was made and a priority was made that part of what uh, would be given would be set aside so that we would give it away and always point ourselves to not just being about ourselves, but being about other people too. And so we've tried uh, literally from day one to be about, um, about spreading hope, not just here in Lone Tree and Highlands Ranch and uh, Metro Denver, but about spreading hope worldwide. And that thing has grown and grown and grown over the years to where um, there's more than a million dollars every year that is, uh, that is I, I would say, invested in the idea of spreading hope all over the world and making sure that people um, understand that there is hope out there. I mean, if there was ever a time for the world to know there's hope, how many of you would agree? It's now. Um, believe it or not, it is a hopeful time if you're hearing from God. I said this um, um, not last night, but, but recently there's really two troughs you can eat from, and there's really only two. There's the trough of this world, and there's the trough of heaven. And if you eat, and your information, and all you consume is just of this world, you're probably not the most hopeful person. But man, if you get your sustenance, and your direction, and your, hmm, if you're getting your nourishment from what God is saying, I bet you're a hopeful person. So when I talk about being outward directed, I'm talking about the idea that the hope that's inside of us, man, that's, we're not trying to spread jubilee. 
We're not trying to spread a teaching or a person or a philosophy. We're trying to spread the hope of Jesus. And that's literally what we're trying to do. And so it's so important to us that we set aside a great part of our budget. um, And then we take time out of a calendar year and we set aside um, some of our teaching for our, um, for our folks to talk about being outward focused. And that's what this little series is through every window. And here it's kind of a, a double meaning. Uh, if you look at longitude and latitude, there are windows in the world. The 1040 window, longitude and latitude 1040, happens to line up with places across the Middle East who have never heard the name of Jesus. And part of what we're focusing on is trying to go into places that have never been told of the hope of Jesus. So there's that window. But then there's also the window of the one in your car, the one in your house, and the one in your office, the window that you look out and you see people around you. And so we're trying to take time and get people to think outside of just me and mine. What's going on around us? And if the hope of Jesus is in our lives, then that hope, we should be spreading that hope. Do you agree with that statement? You're back. (laughs) I got a story for you after, man. Catch me, yeah. (laughs) So here, here, so that to tell you this story, um, I was 12. And here's how I remember that I was 12. This is not just like I think I was 12. I know for a fact that I was 12. It was 1976, so some of you are doing the math real quick and calculating how old I am. And, uh, so 1976, the Olympics were going on. It was the Winter Olympics, and Dorothy Hamill, for those who are old enough, was like the star of the Olympics, figure skater, and she was beautiful. And... I got the Sports Illustrated and pulled her picture out and taped it to my wall. And um, I'm sure it was 1976. We were not raised um, in this kind of church. Uh, It's not that that God... God was important, but not a priority. So I knew about God and was taught about God, but I didn't have a relationship with God. So it is possible to know about something and not know. Something Like many of you hear me talk about my wife so you know about her, but very few of you actually know her. Does that make sense? Uh, There's a difference between those two things. So I knew about God, and I had been taught about God, but I didn't know God. But I I had a heart that... Can I tell you one of the things I like about myself? I have a tender heart. It's one of the things I don't like about myself, too. But it's one of the things I like about myself, because even at 54, my heart can still be moved. I can still cry over things, and I can still feel. I'm 54, and I can still feel. I still have hope, (laughs) and that's a good thing, man. And I was 12 years old, and I remember not being led in this. No one directed this. There was nothing to precipitate this except the goodness of God. I remember laying on my bed as a 12-year-old boy and speaking to God and saying these words, God, I want you. God, I want you. I, there was no, like, uh, no angel showed up, no fire fell from heaven, no, uh, no nothing that would have made that conversation seem like more than just a 12-year-old kid talking to the heavens, except that God heard me. 
And even at 12 years old, man, my heart was filled with such hope for the things of God. I just always had this place in my heart. I, I share that story with you to say that I think through my life, so many times, God has been so merciful to, to fill my heart and to fill my life and to speak to me, to introduce himself to me. And I get asked this question from times like people in parts of the world that never heard the name of Jesus, if they grow up and they've never been told about Jesus and they die, what happens to them? I said, man, I'm not God, so I'm not in a position to judge that, but I can say this. I know that without anybody ever telling me, God showed himself to me. And I called out to the God of heaven. And I know that he heard me. And the hope that is in me to be able to stand up here and to talk about Jesus and to talk about that hope. Man, every weekend, that's what gets me excited. I start my, my messages sort of talking, and I know by the time I get going that my brain is moving faster than my mouth can keep up with. But that hope and that excitement that's in me is what I want to talk about today. Because when you really know Jesus, look, some of it's personality, but when you really know Jesus, there's a true hope inside of you. Yes. And it's a hope that the Bible says we should be ready to give an explanation for. Meaning that people should ask us, yes. why are you hopeful? Yes. Yes. And so I want to talk about that a little bit today, and I want to take you through some scripture. And um, I did something to my staff this week that... Um, Made it a little bit tough on them. And, um, you know, normally I'll pick a text and it's five or six scriptures and then try to explain those five or six scriptures. So I'm reading John chapter four and I'm teaching a lot out of John right now. And almost the whole chapter of John speaks to me. So when I write the message, I told them, and let's include uh, 40 verses. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I'm apologizing for reading the Bible in church. How, but I, the story is remarkable, and so um, I'm gonna do it. That's just all there is to it. So, um, yeah, and if you don't like it, um, no apology. You need to like it. That's how it is. That's just the way that it is. So I'm, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna read it from, um, uh, from my notes in front of me. They do have it on... Um, on the slide so that you can follow along. So it's John chapter four, it starts at one. Uh, Jesus knew, oh, hold on just a minute, my thing is reloading, here we go. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing, making more disciples than John, John the Baptist, and then it gives this caption, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. What's really important there is that Jesus wasn't out trying to say, hey, watch me do all this. The best clue about this right here is that um, the real work of the ministry is for people into the ministry to teach others how to do the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4 says that's a pastor's job is to train people to do the work of the ministry. And what we live with in the Western world primarily is that we come and we watch professional pastors do the work of the ministry. And we've learned to be entertained by that more than anything else. And it's such a sad mistake. And here's why. Here's why it's a bad mistake. You can enjoy a message. You can enjoy a church. You can enjoy... All, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem with watching other people do it. It's that the life of God flows to you when you do it. That's where the excitement is. And the reason most people are bored with church and bored with religion is it's just it's something they're watching, they're not actually doing. And you want to do it. 
And what this tells us right here is that Jesus wasn't telling the disciples, watch me, guys. Watch what I can do. He's getting them to do it so that they're experiencing for themselves how awesome it is and how fun it is and the life that's in it. So it says he left Judea and returned to Galilee. And then we get this detail. Now, um, we are uh, living in 2018, 2,000 years removed from this scripture, not from that part of the world. And so there's an understanding. I want to teach you a little something about this that maybe you didn't know about Samaritans um, and, and, and what's being said in this story. The power of the Bible is this, that even if you don't come from the context of it, it's still alive and it can speak to you where you are. But when you get the context of it, it can speak to you where you are and you can get a better understanding of why it was written. And then it gets really interesting. So verse four, he had to go through Samaria on the way. So he's leaving Judea, going back to Galilee. If you went to Israel with me a couple of weeks ago, I showed you where those things are. So maybe you have a picture in your mind of what that looks like. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, most Jews um, did not like Samarians. And there's a reason why, and I'll talk about it. But so much so, there was such animosity between them that um, an observant Jew would walk 25 miles out of the way not to walk through Samaria. Now, can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine doing that in the summertime? And that's what the story tells us is about to happen. And it's just showing us that Jesus had a different way of, <laughs> of reaching people. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. So it's hot. He has to walk where he's going. He did not go the long way around intentionally. He went straight through because there's an appointment that he's got. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was, what's that word say? She's surprised. Okay, so we read this. Why is she surprised? He scared her. Uh, she didn't expect him to be there. It's much more than that. He's a Jew. Jews did not get along with this people group right here. It goes back before Jesus' time more than a thousand years. They hate each other. They fight with each other. They, they do not get along with each other so much so that an observant Jew, he, they won't even talk to a Samaritan, let alone ask for a Samaritan to do something for them. Then we've got another issue. As an observant Jew, Jews, men, did not talk directly to women, single women, in that day and in that time. It was improper. So when she's surprised here, Jesus is breaking all of these taboos. And that's what Jesus does usually. It's what makes Pharisees mad and Sadducees sad. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water from? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals were able to enjoy? 
Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. That's that hope that I'm talking about. See, listen, man, if you don't get what I'm saying, my question is, have you had a drink of that water? Do you really get it? Do you know that just because you go to a church like this doesn't mean you necessarily get it? There's more to it than just coming and going through all of the things that we do. Have you really? Have you really met the Jesus that I'm talking about? The one that gives hope. That's what he himself is trying to explain here. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. <laughs> Jesus, as he was often apt to do, takes her on a journey of discovery. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you're not married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly speak the truth. Sir, let me just stop. You imagine? I mean, what's the comeback? I'm glad I showed up here today. What, I mean, he reads her mail, knows the, the intimate details here, and yet he must have done it in a way that was not offensive to her because she still is curious about who he is. She recognizes, wow, there's something special about this guy. Uh, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Let me stop. Uh, There are some people who like uh, history details and a little greater understanding of the Bible. So for you, let me just teach you about this real quickly. For those of you who just like, hey, I, you know, I just like the moving and the fast and get to the point, just give me a second, and I will do that. I will do both things. All right, here's their history. Uh, Israel, when it became a nation, uh, did not have a king initially. God was their king. But the people insisted on having a king, and their first king was Saul. Saul messed up really bad. And so... Um, They got David right after Saul, and David was a great king. But David, as a human, messed up too. David had an affair and actually committed murder in order to cover up the affair. And even though David repented of it, um, there were consequences to his sin. And those consequences were, uh, your kingdom at some point is going to be divided into two different kingdoms. David was very sorry for what he did. He publicly confessed his sin, and God loved David. And this is what God told David, I won't do it in your lifetime or in your son's lifetime. But after that, David, this thing you did, it can't be ignored and the kingdom's going to be divided. David's son that he had with Bathsheba was Solomon. Solomon was a great king. The Bible said he was the wealthiest man and the wisest man who ever lived up until that time. Solomon um, taxed the people heavily, though, to support his lifestyle. He was a very elaborate person. If you ever look at, he had gold shields, uh, things on display. His house, not just the temple that he built, 
but his house was, it was magnificent. And for its day and its time, it would rival anything today that, that could be built. And he taxed the people very heavily. They loved him and they put up with it. But how about this? Nobody likes to be taxed heavily. I'm going to say it one more time. It's a good amen point. Nobody likes to be taxed heavily. Amen. amen. It doesn't matter if you're whatever. Nobody likes it. So um, when Solomon dies, uh, his son becomes king. And Solomon's advisors, older men, told him, here's what you need to do. Cut the taxes and the people will love you. And they will support you and it will be wonderful. But here was the problem. He was a young guy. And so he had his set of advisors that were his age. And this is what they told him. What you really need to do is to prove to everybody that you're stronger, tougher, and badder than your dad. So raise the taxes. And he listened to the wrong advice. And can I just tell you the wrong advice can split your house in no time at all. And he raised the taxes. And that day, there were 12 tribes that made up Israel. Ten of the twelve rebelled against, and it split the kingdom. One half was called Israel, ten tribes, and the other two were called Judah. And the book of Kings begins to talk about, first and second Kings, uh, what happened. And here was the ten tribes that were called Israel. Um, man, they strayed from God. They did not pick a king who came from the Davidic line. They picked a person who worked in Solomon's court that they liked. He was not picked by God. He was not a good guy. He began to lead uh, these ten tribes of Israel astray. They began to worship false gods. They began to go in a direction that was horrible. While Judah at the time, the two remaining tribes, tried to follow God. And, and, it, and it just gives the parallel between the two. How God honored Judah for holding on to him. And how the ten tribes that made up Israel strayed. And the prophets would come and warn these ten tribes, if you don't stop this, you're going to fall into slavery, you're going to be judged, it's going to be bad for you. And they didn't listen, and here's what happened eventually. The Assyrians came. And here's what they did to them, and um, they grabbed those ten tribes and they pulled them out of Israel. And then they sent their own people to live in Israel. So now you have a mixture of people. So the two tribes that held on, Judah did not get along now with these Assyrians. These Assyrians intermarried, brought in all sorts of false gods, so it began a hatred towards these two. Am I making any sense on this? All right, so this is a thousand years before Jesus is on the scene here, and they hate each other. So much so that when the temple was built in Jerusalem, this group of people said, that's not really where Mount Moriah is. Mount Moriah is in Mount Gerizim where we live. So they built their, they had two different temples, believe it or not. And they fought with each other and it just, they were just horrible to each other. I mean, it was on and on and on. So when we come to this story, that's what's going on. And that's, that's why she's asking these questions. So with that in mind, um, let, let me... Verse 19, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim uh, it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? And then Jesus, man, just again, Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. 
while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And that's why I said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem, you could lay on your bed and cry out to the God of heaven, and as long as you worship the God of heaven, the God who is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God reveals himself to you. And he can show himself to you, man. And that is a powerful concept. And it's wonderful to go to Israel. It's wonderful to see the places where these things happen. But it doesn't make you any more holy to go to Israel. And I hear from God just as easy right here as I do standing at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. <laughs> <laughs> McFly. <laughs> and then Jesus told her plainly and clearly, I am the Messiah. And then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman because he's not supposed to be doing that. He's not supposed to be talking to a Samaritan woman. He's not supposed to be alone with her. He's not supposed to be drinking after her. But none of them have the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said... So belief is not necessarily predicated on having to have met Jesus in person, being told about Jesus. The hope this woman had in her heart caused many Samaritans to believe. Do you see that right there? Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. But look at this. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two extra days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. So there's two kinds of belief here. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, just real quick, why is this story even in the Bible? The Bible is a very carefully edited, selected text by the Holy Spirit. Uh, John's Gospel says if all the works of just Jesus were written down, the world couldn't contain the volumes. I know that's hyperbole. I know that that's not true. But what's being said is that uh, most of what Jesus did didn't even make it in the Bible. Only the carefully edited things that the Holy Spirit wanted in here. So my question to you is, why does this story make it in when so many other things probably didn't? Well, there's something about this story that we're supposed to grasp and understand that's important for us today. So we're talking about the hope that's inside of us. I think this story is Jesus explaining that hope is like living water, man. When you drink it, when you really experience it, it you'll never be thirsty again. It satisfies. It's the reason that you exist. It's why you're going to be doing what you're doing tomorrow. It's the reason you got out of bed. If you really meet him, it all comes together. And then it also touches on that issue that there's two kinds of belief. There's the belief that people have that when I'm talking about Jesus, 
people believe, yes, he existed. Yes, he was a good man. In fact, here's where this woman was. You must be a prophet, but not until she embraced him as Messiah. Did she really know him? And so most of you in this room today would agree with me. There was a Jesus. Historically, there's more proof that Jesus existed. There's more proof for the resurrection than there is for most of the history that you read growing up. Most people in this room would not argue that he was a true historical character, maybe even a prophet, but until you know him as Messiah, Come on. you don't know him. Amen. And that's what makes it dangerous because you can go and hear about it and say, I believe and think you're okay, but do you know him? Hey, can I be your pastor and your friend for a moment right now? Dude, I got to get back into a rhythm with you. I'm so close. You're so close. Me, you got to get with me. Yeah. You see what you do to me? You threw me off my... I missed you, man. I'm glad you're back. So let me give you three things. Um that I think you can use from this story about the hope that's inside of us. And we're talking about every window, not just windows in the longitude, latitude of the world, but the windows in your car, the windows in your house, the windows at your office, the windows when you shop, just the people that you see. So three things from this story that I think are just really, they're, they're powerful. I think it's the reason it's in here. It's the first one. You might want to write it in. God can use your story. Man, you have to admit, this woman had a story. But it wasn't a great story. It's not the kind of story you want your kid to grow up and have, yes or no? Yeah. I mean, you're not raising your daughter so that she can tell a story like this woman tells. Right. You're raising your children so that they don't tell that kind of a story. You're raising your children so that their story is completely different. I've got two stories that I can tell. The story of a 12-year-old boy who has the problems. The, the great conflict of my life is that Dorothy Hamill will never know me. <laughs> I mean, the worst thing that I had ever done, God had to deliver me from M&M's and Coca-Cola. There, there it is. There, there's no, I, it's not one of those stories where it was so bad and it was so ugly and it was so horrible and God had to do this great work of redemption. There's a 12-year-old kid who God caused the whole world to stand still. So that he could meet me in my bedroom and give me a heart for him. And yet that same kid had a father biologically who abandoned him at three. A father who adopted him and who was killed in a car accident when he was 11. Another man who entered our lives who was not a good guy and abused my mom and her sons. And I can tell a story of redemption that's not a pretty story. And either one of them, God can use to reach people. But here's the most remarkable thing. The story is not the point. It's the redemption inside of the story that's the point. And so your story, I got asked this again this week by a person who doesn't have one of those testimonies. I was a gangster. You know, I, I was in the mob and... 
you know, one of those, it's just, it was a simple story. I just grew up loving Jesus. There's not much to talk about. Are you kidding me? You didn't have to go after the things of this world because Jesus so captured your heart? The story may open a person's heart, but the story is not the story. It's what God does with the story. The book of Ephesians says that you are his handiwork. In the Greek, it's the word poema, P-O-E-M-A, where we get the modern word poem from. So here's what it's saying. You are God's poem. Put on display for the world to read. Every museum I've ever been in, every piece of marble I've ever seen chiseled, painting painted, drawing drawn, clay molded, never screams, look at me! It always speaks of a brilliant artist somewhere behind it, yes or no? Uh, David, we've all seen that beautiful sculpture of David. But it doesn't scream out, what a great piece of marble I am. It screams out there was a genius behind the scene who chiseled this thing together. Every great painting, it's about the artist who painted your life, your story, never screams about you. It screams about the God who created you, who wants to put it on display for people to read and to see. And that's what makes your story so unique. And the devil convinces us our story is, I need someone else's story. Oh, what a waste that is, man. Your story is the most unique. It's got God's fingerprints all over it. And if you'll tell your story, bringing out the redemption of God in it. So you could have a great marriage and go, hey, God did this. Or you could have a really bad one and go, God rescued me. You could have a financial story. I was blessed my whole life and look at what God's given me. Or ah, I struggled my whole life and God had to. Either way, the story's not the point. It's what God does with the story that's the point. And if you could just get people to understand, man, that God can use your story. Look at me real quick. Let me just be honest with you. <laughs> I've been here 20 years. If I'm nothing else, I am transparent. Yes, you are. Agreed with that? If I'm nothing else. So let me just say this. I, I know what I am. I know I'm not the most brilliant orator in the area. I know I'm not the most educated. No, look, you be quiet for a minute. I'm not... <laughs> You think it's easy. Come up here and try this. I know I'm... <laughs> Here's what I said last night. God can make blind eyes see. When I stand up here, I ask that he make seeing eyes blind at times. Because I know there's no real reason for me to be up here other than the hope of glory that's in my heart, man is that when I start to talk about who he is and what he's done and how much I love him, God does something with it that attracts this eclectic. Look around at this group of people. What do we have in common? Jesus. That's it. Jesus. It's the one thing that if you go here, we can agree on. We're going to love Jesus and move towards that. 
I'm driving in my car yesterday praying for our church and I'm praying for revival. And in my mind, I know that means so many different things to everybody. So here's my definition of revival. That in unity, we would move towards a greater hunger for God. That we would all desire God more. We would all know him more. I, I never pray over the offering anymore. I never pray. or I, I just pray, God, if we had more of you, it'll answer all of those questions. That make any sense? I know so many people are on the paradigm of faith. You're beginning, you're in the middle, you're way farther than I am. Man, if I, I, I can't even consider all of those things when I stand up here because it's so overwhelming. I stand up here with just this. God, let the hope that's in my heart, my love for you, God, let it grow every week so that when I stand up there, I've got something new to tell them about you. And that's what I think makes what I do doable. Here's the second thing, and I mentioned it. There's just two kinds of belief. I don't know how else to say this. I did have a little bit of conflict with this last night. Um, I got, uh, as soon as I got done, um, there's a new, um, there's a snow cone place at University and uh, County Line called Bahama Bucks. If you like shave ice, go, right? <laughs> I have no skin in the game, but my grandkids love it. And it's my fault because I bought a snow cone machine years ago. And when they come to the house and the parents drop them off, I dope them up with sugar like crazy. Man, I just like that. And uh, so last night after church, our plan was let's just get the whole gang, get all the grandkids, and let's just go over there. And um, there's, you can sit outside and they can scream and yell and we can eat the, eat the shave ice, just have a good time. And so I'm trying to get from here and get them all together and get out to the car. And a guy grabs me and he just said, Pastor, it's confusing when you say there's two kinds of belief because I feel like what you're saying is that, um, you know, if, if we don't believe enough, then we're not going to heaven. We're not. And I had to stop and I had to say, dude, that's what I'm saying. I am saying that. I'm not trying to be rude to you, and I'm not trying to be ugly to you, and I'm not trying to put you in a funky place, because it's not what you do, but I am trying to say this. It's not enough for you to sit there and go, I know the Jesus you're talking about. You need to know Jesus. Does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? Not, I agree with you, or I agree that there's such a person, or I've even read the Bible do you know him? I don't know how to make that any clearer. I am not trying to be offensive. I am not trying to be hurtful. I am trying to be your friend right now and tell you the truth. One of the scariest scriptures in the Bible is that on the day of judgment, there will be a group of people who went to church who look at Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I don't know who you are. What's the difference? He says, I never knew you. Look at me. If this worries you, let it worry you for a minute. But it can be solved. Know him. Know him. Don't be afraid of me right now. Don't, be, don't stumble over me and be offended by what I'm saying right now. If you tell, but I was baptized as a kid. And I made my first communion. So did I, and I didn't know him. Do you know him? 
if you knew the gift that I'm offering to you right now, and the one on whom's behalf I'm saying it, you would ask for that drink of water. And you'd never thirst again too. There are two kinds of belief. It's described in 42. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. To know him, hey, he's a great man, a great prophet, a great teacher. Okay, I agree. But he's the savior of the world, folks. And that's the difference. How about this? This one goes completely just like outside of the box. Um, this story is in here because Jesus is busting down every taboo he could possibly bust down at that point. Here's the four taboos he's busting down in the story that you and I don't realize because we don't live in that culture at that time with that, that understanding. The first one he's busting down is the religious taboo. As an observant Jew, and Jesus was, he was not supposed to be doing what he was doing, but he was doing it. And it is what made the Pharisees so angry and the Sadducees so jealous. Here's what Jesus said about those religious people. Here's your problem. It's like the blind leading the blind. You won't come into the kingdom, but worse than that, you keep people from coming into the kingdom. Any religion, man, that keeps people from God... has to be broken down. The real deal is not about the formality. You can be comfortable. You, you can like the normalcy of things, but when God gets a hold of something, it, it busts down all of the sacred cows. He's breaking a racial taboo. At different times in their history, they were both in charge of each other. At one point, the Jews were in charge of the Samaritans, and they burnt down their temple. At one time, the Samaritans were in charge of the Jews and made their life miserable. They hated each other. They treated each other terribly, and they were, um, they were bigoted towards each other. They really were bigoted towards each other, and Jesus is here busting down the racial tension between the two. Man... Two, two great examples. Um, last week, I used the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus just tells the story of the guy that gets beat up, and the priest comes along, sees him, and goes to the other side of the road. Then the temple worker comes along, sees him, and goes to the other side of the road. And then the Samaritan comes along and sees him. In light of what I just taught you about Samaritans, Jesus takes the anti-hero and makes them the hero in the story. And then takes the ones who should have known better and makes them the goat in the story. Trying to stress, man, he's there to reach all people. He's walking with James and John, brothers, disciples. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, going through Samaria at another time. And when the people in Samaria find he's on his way to Jerusalem because they're bigoted against the Jews, they begin to treat Jesus very bad. And so the disciples turn around and they say to Jesus, Hey, would you like us to call down fire out of heaven right now and consume these people for you? Wouldn't you like to have that power occasionally to... And Jesus looks at him and goes, you don't know of what spirit you are. Of course I don't want you to do that. I love these people. Here's my point. Every time Jesus is dealing with this group of people that were so hated, he's reaching out and loving them. 
He's breaking down taboos left and right. He's breaking down a sexual taboo. He is not supposed to be talking to this woman. He is not, she is considered unclean, not just because she's a Samaritan, but the way she lives her life, man. And in our culture, she's normal. But in that culture, she wasn't. And he's breaking down a sexual taboo and he's breaking down a social taboo because they didn't even socialize with each other. And maybe, maybe right now, this means very little to you other than I would just simply say this. The real gospel, the one that Jesus died to give us, the one that we say we believe, when it's in effect, part of the proof that the gospel is real is that it's breaking down taboos that hold people down. That make any sense? Yes. Dude, we should be on the side of those who have no voice. Yes. Right. We should be the ones following what Jesus did. Okay, obviously, I'm stepping into something right now that uh, is sticky. So, let's move. There are two things required for sharing your faith. Really, just two things. The hope that's in you. Here's the first one. It's really simple. Just be available. Just be av- take, the, take the earphones out. Yes. Put the phone down. Look around. Be available. Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 29. This is a really cool story about uh, Philip. This is after Jesus ascends into heaven. And Jerusalem, man, is going through revival. Uh, the first century church, the first, uh, man, the first really... 20 years of the church, 10 years for sure, uh, most of the converts are Jews who are becoming Christians. And so um, it's spreading like wildfire, and there's not enough workers to do all that God is doing. So there's this really cool story. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Uh, What if he'd have said no? What if he'd have just said, I'm too busy? What if he was... The Holy Spirit was able to, he was available. Philip ran over. I love that. He didn't just walk over, he ran over. And he heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you were reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? Man, this is a lay down. And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture that he had been reading was this from the prophet Isaiah. He was led like a a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip this question. Tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, Because you haven't gone through the baptism class yet. (laughs) You haven't completed our foundations course. Sometimes we make something that God makes so easy, so complicated, man. He ordered the carriage to stop. They went down into the water and Philip baptized him. I love this part of the story. It's why I included it. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. The next time we read about Philip, he's about 40 miles away from where he was 
right then and there. It's probably the closest understanding we have to the rapture of the church. That word snatch. To be there and then not. The twinkling of an eye to be changed. I, maybe it's a rapture inside of a bigger picture of a rapture. Just being available. Available to share your faith. Available to tell your story. Available to, uh, to talk. Learning to be available is maybe the most important thing in the world to do. And it's hard to, to be available. Man, I, I am out of time. Um, it's making myself available after a service. Sometimes the most important thing that happens is not this right here. It's a word or two out there. And it gets overwhelming. And people wait a long period of time. And I get tired too. I bought these nice new shoes that are really comfortable for standing. <laughs> Seriously. It's like a cross between a dress shoe and a tennis shoe. And they're the most comfortable shoes in the world. So I can stand a little longer now. Be a little more available. Trying to be available. There's a gal that cuts my hair. I go to Floyd's 99. Here's what I found. If you don't know their name, your haircut's cheaper. Once you learn their name, you have to tip more. <laughs> Yay or nay. If you don't know their name, your haircut's cheaper. Once you learn their name, it gets expensive. But there's this girl, and we got talking, and I shared the hope that's in my heart. And now I know that my mission when I get my haircut is I have to go to her, and I have to tip her good. That <laughs> you must be cutting hair out there, whoever like yes, 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 yes. You got that right, preacher. Uh, it, her name is not even relevant in this, other than to say, I'm available to her. I know so much about her, and I've spent no more than 20 minutes at a time with her. I know that she's not married and she lives with a guy. I know that they have two kids. I know that she's trying to make ends meet. I know that she wants to travel. I know that she'd like to go to the Middle East. I got her interested in Israel. She knows I'm a pastor. She knows how many children I have. She knows about my grandchildren. She thinks I look much younger than I am. So why am I even telling? Yeah, it gets a bigger, bigger tip, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the, she's playing me. Um, the bottom line is just I have shared the hope in my heart with this girl three or four times now and I never ever say do you want to know about the hope in my heart she asked me because it'll spill out of you if you'll get yourself in a position but then again that's just is that water in you is it okay for me to ask that question boy I don't want to be offensive you know my staff this is my staff's fault because my staff is, be bold, pastor. Be bold, pastor. Be bold. And I'm always like, I'm such an offensive person. I'm never up here to be offensive to anybody. Never. That is not, that's not in my heart. But, boy, to leave you with less than what God would want for you, what a, I'm not your friend if I do that. Just being available. Um, the second one is just be willing to share your hope. And that's really what the whole message comes down to, the hope that's in you. First Peter 3, 15. This is his advice. 
Look at this real carefully. In your hearts, revere Christ as what? Not as a good teacher, not as a good man, not as a person who did live. Revere him as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the? Let's say it one more time. For the? The hope that you have. And then this part. And do this with gentleness and respect. If we would learn this hope and then to share it with gentleness and respect to people. It's not respectful to tell somebody what they believe is stupid. It's not respectful to tell somebody that the way they're living is... That's not respectful. Man, I can listen to anybody tell me anything. It doesn't mean I have to agree with it, but I can respect them by listening to them. And then to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in my heart. And to relate to where that person's at. And I don't know how else to say that. And I realize the message kind of went in a direction today that I didn't mean for it to go with this service. I know I got a little heavy-handed there on the whole believe, believe. Man, where would I leave you at right here? I guess these two things. The whole reason that we do this month where we talk about through every window, we do our global venture dinner. It's October the 5th, 6.30 here at this campus, and we do it right, man. There's a great dinner. It's an international meal. We talk about all of the outreach projects that we do locally and internationally. It's not to make you give anything. We don't, that, that's not what it's for. It's to connect you to what we're already doing so that you'll pray or maybe you will go. Love to take you on a trip. Love to show you what God is doing in other parts. I'd love to show you the hope that's out there in the world that the newspaper and the television never report. I'd love to show you. I have such hope in my heart for Lone Tree this morning and for Castle Rock, for Castle Pines, for Highlands Ranch. Not so much for Inglewood, but... <laughs> I have such hope in my heart. Two years ago, right now, I had a heart attack. Right now. Two years ago, right now, I could easily not be here. My family could be marking today an anniversary of my homecoming, I suppose. On one side, and then a great regret for them on this side. But that didn't happen. Here I am. And there's a reason. So look at me real quick. So that you don't misunderstand. It's not just because I had a good doctor. And it's not because I was lucky. The hope that's in my heart is needed right now. For this church. For you, somebody here needed to hear what I said today because you feel hopeless. You're eating from a trough that's told you there's no hope. And I'm trying to tell you the truth right now. There's more hope than you can possibly imagine. It's not false hope. It's not hope against hope. It's the real deal. 
He's alive. He's active. He's moving. He's here. And he loves you. And he wants to invade your life, man. He doesn't want to leave you where you are. It's okay to not be okay, but he loves you enough not to leave you in that place right there. I am here because somebody needs hope today. I'm convinced of it. You know what's really cool? I forgot that this was my anniversary. My wife reminded me. <laughs> she remembers, yeah. But there's a reason. And I think part of it was to offer hope today. So that's what I want to do. Will you pray with me? Lord, I love you. And the hope that's in my heart. <sighs> hey folks, just keep your eyes closed, but open your ears real, real clear right now. I'm joking when I said about, I hope that he makes seeing eyes blind. But what I really do mean by that is, I don't want you to trip on me. I don't want anything that I say or that I do to cause you not to see Jesus or to not understand what hope really is. I don't know most of the situations of what people are going through in their lives. And here, this is really, really good. I don't need to know that in order to offer you hope. The God who is God offers hope today. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to join church. You don't have to get religion. You don't have to be good. All you need to do is to say, God, be merciful to me. God, I need your hope. God, help me. Maybe like me, you've grown up around a knowledge of God, but you don't really know him. Don't be afraid of that and don't be scared of that. Don't be ashamed of that. If the Lord should open your heart today to say, I want to know you. I want you to know me and you feel that. Then say to God, yes. If this isn't your regular activity, if you don't plan on coming back here, if this is not how you spend your weekends, but you happen to be here at this moment in time hearing about hope, there's a reason. That reason is because God loves you. And he intended for your path to cross his today. And if you need hope, he wants to give you hope. Real hope. Hope that's eternal. you say, Pastor, I want that hope. Remember me when you pray today. Listen, friend, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. 
I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to do anything to you, but I want to facilitate. We're at a point in time where God is asking and you need to make a response. You say, Pastor, that's me and I need you to pray for me today. Just lift your hand up real quick. Just pray for me. Yep, yep, yep. You can put them right back down. Father, you see every person, every heart, every motivation of every heart, and every reason why. Father, do what you do. God, restore us. The original intention of creation is to know you and be known by you. It's to live the life that you purpose for us. It's not just biological and accidental. There's a purpose, a design, an intelligence. There's a reason to get up tomorrow. There's a reason to hope for next week. There's a reason to believe. Father, work that in our lives. Take us from where we are right at this moment, right at this point in time, and work it in our lives. Father, for every person that calls out for your mercy, for your grace, for your life, for your hope, thank you for giving that to them. Thank you for giving it to us. God, may it be true and may it be right. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to me, um, for respecting me enough to tolerate to tolerate me. <laughs> this last song before you go, it's a really powerful song, and I want to encourage you. Don't go till we've sung it. I think there's a seal of the Holy Spirit that he has on this song right here. And I know in space and time, things need to move, but um, allow this song to seal what God wants to do.